What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Big Tech's ordinance has everything from complete firearms to OEM and aftermarket parts. If you're looking to put together your first AR-15, they have everything from those parts that you need to the tools that are going to be essential. If you're looking for suppressors, night vision, handheld lights, weapon lights, sights or optics, you name it. Big Tex has it all. Not only that, they're offering all those brands that we like. Go visit them at BigTexOrdinance.com. Overwatch Precision is a team of civilians and combat veterans based in Phoenix, Arizona, that employ industry-leading production methods, coatings, and materials in their striker-fired polymer-framed pistol trigger systems. With an internal engineering team focused on thoughtful design, Overwatch's flat-faced and curved triggers safely deliver a mechanical advantage to your carry or duty Glock, Walther, CZ, P10, and Smith & Wesson MMP 2.0 with improved function and increased accuracy. See more at overwatchprecision.com. Filster makes awesome holsters. But not only that, they also happen to be one of those companies that are trendsetters. A lot of their designs are emulated by other companies. Not only does Filstered make those holsters, but they also provide concealment systems like the Enigma, the Flex. They also have a lot of solutions when it comes to concealment solutions for medical. If you need to have a concealment first aid kit, they happen to sell them. Check them out at filsterholster.com. Primary Arms Government recently showed off a new giveaway, which features a new Daniel Defense M4 V7 rifle, complete with GLX 1-6 power first focal plane rifle scope, PLX mount, and more. These monthly giveaways are only open to first responders and members of the military, so there's way less competition for the big prize. Entry is also completely free with no purchase necessary, ever. So if you want to have a chance to win, just visit primaryarms.com government and hit the giveaway button at the top. Walther is the performance leader in the firearms industry, renowned throughout the world for its innovation since Carl Walther and his son Fritz created the first blowback semi-automatic pistol in 1908. Today, the innovative spirit builds off the invention of the concealed carry gun with the PPK series by creating the PPQ, PPS, and the Q5 match steel frame series. Military, police, and other government security groups in every country of the world have relied on the high-quality craftsmanship and rugged durability of Walther products. Walther continues its long tradition of technical expertise and innovation in the design and production of firearms. For more information, visit WalterArms.com. Oh, you're here. What's up? Nothing. Man, that's a wall. That's a wall of guns behind you. Yeah, yeah, it is. I only have one behind me. See that? Just one. But it's the one that counts. It's a cool one. I wanted one like that for a long time, and now I'm afraid to shoot it. Why is that? You ever shot a forty-five seventy with a brass butt plate? I don't think mine has a brass butt plate. Yeah, yeah, that's why. <laughs> so why don't you get another one and then just change out the butt plate? 
So you can keep that one. It's in, in, in the original configuration. You mean like this one? There you go. Hmm. And that's also a 4570. Yeah. Yeah, that's and it that's kicks cool. like a it kicks like a bastard. You know, so the I, I always wanted a 4570, finally picked one up, uh, one of the Marlins. It's not as bad as I thought it would be. It's uh more pleasant than other things I've shot. Maybe yeah, it's the ammo it, I'm shooting. Yeah, I think it depends on what you're shooting. Um you know, it's it's one of those deals of I'm shooting that Hornady Superformance. I think it's a three twenty-five grain bullet at like twenty-four hundred feet per second. Yeah, it's brutal. I mean, I have some. I have some uh, Winchester. I want to say it's like four hundred or four fifty grain at like a thousand feet per second. Yeah, I think that'll probably be a little better, but yeah. Um, on the short list of things to do this winter is to make a suppressor for that. Oh, fun. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll make a, I'm going to make a shorty, you know, just like, I don't know, probably six or eight inches long. Just, just to take to the have, edge off. Yeah. Just to take yeah. the edge off. Yeah. The gun's already heavier than hell. You know, I put that, uh, I put the chisel machine stock on there, which I love. And the, uh, optic, um, what do they call those things that hold your bullets? Oh yeah. Yeah. Quiver. And then, um, the owner of Midwest industry sent me that new rail system. You know, it's pretty slick. So, and then I put the vortex, uh, strike Eagle one to eight on there and hey, I like it, you know, but it just, it beats the ever loving piss out of you. And, you know, I think I'm not a hundred percent positive. Are we live yet? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, we are. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I won't say what I was going to say. Ah, I was enjoying this. Well, I think I'm not a hundred percent positive, but I think that I cracked my collarbone a couple oh. a month and a half ago. Yeah. And, uh, so shooting that has been extremely painful. <laughs> I've been trying to lay off the heavy recoil stuff for a little while. Absolutely. Oh, I don't blame you. Until we get healed up. So hope nobody watching gets offended if I smoke, but I'm going to smoke. No. I, as a matter of fact, I, okay. Do you remember the TV show SCTV? SCTV. Yes. Yeah, it, I think so. It kind of was like a Saturday Night Live, but it was, yeah, it yeah. was like a sketch comedy. Right. Uh, they had a running gag that was smell-o-vision. And <laughs> I wish I had smell-o-vision right now because the smell of a pipe is, I just love it. Absolutely love yeah, it. I'm glad. I'm glad you like it. Are you going to shot show? Are you going to shot show? No, I, I've oh. been really thinking about it, and I, uh, I, I, I can't justify it. Yeah, we're we're gonna go this year. Will be the first time we've been in a couple of years. Well, since the scandemic. Yep. And yep. Uh, Heidi asked me. She's like, "Do you want to go?" And I'm like, "You know, if it's not too expensive, let's do it." And of course we can fly out of Omaha on Southwest and it's direct flight um, that, you know, it's nonstop direct flight. It's relatively inexpensive and get there and stay at the Venetian, which is the only place I'll stay. Um, I mean, we got friends that stay all over Vegas and they're like, Oh, you should stay here. You should stay there. And I'm like, look, when I was poor, I stayed at all those places. 
And now that I'm still poor, I'm not staying at those places. <laughs> now that you have different priorities. Right. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm just not staying. You know, I stayed at Circus Circus one year, right? Because it was oh, yeah. super. And I stayed there because it was cheap. And I thought, oh, this will be great. It's not that far from the show. Yep. And it's like four miles to walk there. I ain't doing it. You know, then I stayed at the Flamingo one year and I had the water on the floor, two floors down from me, the water main broke. I didn't have water all week. Oh, wow. That was terrible. So I'm like, I'm not staying in any of these offbeat hotels ever wow. again. To hell with that. Stay at the V. You're right there. You know, you know, you get done with the show and you want to go take a nap or a shower. You go upstairs. Right there. You're there. You know, uh, if Heidi gets tired of being on the show floor with me, she can go right up to the room and relax. It's no big deal. Heck yeah. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the places that we eat are right there within the V anyway. Yeah. So why leave? Man, you're making me, I'm, I'm getting second thoughts. You should go. <laughs> I'm telling you, it'd be awesome. You'd love it. I know. And you know why we're going? Really, the, the main reason we're going is to see our friends like you. Absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. I've got a I've got a couple of products that I'm that I'm excited to be bringing out that I'll show around to some people at the show and whatever. But other than that, I'm just going to see my friends and hang out. Yep. It's a it's a mini vacation in the middle of middle of the worst month of the year here in Nebraska to get the hell out of here. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Uh, maybe I'll look up some pricing. I think See. it was like, I think it was like a thousand bucks a person, uh, to fly from Omaha and stay in the V all week. That's all. That was it. Oh, <laughs> maybe that's, I should just go. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like you, you get in, I think we get in, uh, Monday morning or Sunday night and we leave Saturday. Yeah. And it's a thousand bucks each. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it was a it was a killer deal. That's why I said you can't I mean the prices it's a way, vacation. Right. Well, and the way the prices work, you know, they're a little bit higher right now. I think they're like thirteen or fourteen hundred a person. But right after Christmas, they'll drop again. Right. Because Vegas is trying to pump it up and all this stuff. But right after Christmas, the price will go back down. It'll be like nine hundred and fifty bucks a person. You know. Well that so, and with so many people that aren't going. They want people to show up. Mm -hmm. Just makes sense. Oh, oh you yeah. suck. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do need to, yeah, make sure that the wife won't kill me if I were to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take the two-year-old with me. He'll be in my carry-on. <laughs> That'll be exciting. Yeah, he'll love it. So who else is joining us tonight? So right now it might just be us and that's fine because I sent out a big, I, I sent out a, a blanket um, invite to a bunch of guys um, and it looks like they haven't even seen the message. So, oh, well, huh. um, there was already a question came up and it was in your, to the best of your knowledge, has anyone made a polymer 1911 that was decent? So... The only one that I've seen was the um, Rock River Arms made one. They made a polymer single stack. Hmm. Well, no, that's not true. That's the, that's the only one I've seen that I can name by name. Okay. They made a, they made a polymer single stack um, 
really, I mean, I think they still even make it. There's another company that made one. There's a couple of prototypes of it. I've seen them. I've handled them. I've shot them. They made them in 45 and 9 millimeter. They may come out with them again in the in the near future. I, I don't know. Can't say for sure. But I will say that they're – it was interesting enough to me that I was like, ooh, I would buy one of these. Hmm. You know, I would own one of these because one of the disadvantages of – lightweight single stacks is always that they're aluminum frames. Well, aluminum frames don't last a long time unless you have them accurate. And so being able to have a steel frame, but a polymer grip to get rid of some of that weight, yep. well, that's a no brainer, you know? And so I don't know what this particular company will end up doing with it, but you know, if they, if they ended up bringing it out to be large scale, that would be cool. Cool. Um, so really, for me, I think that the main topic, for some reason, people have been asking, well, then what's the difference between a 1911 and a 2011? And then that, I got to thinking, well, what about the different series, the 70s series, the 80s series of 1911? So seeing how people might be taking them a little bit more seriously and going, you know what, maybe I want to go buy one. It would be kind of a fun discussion just to discuss. Yeah, this is sure, what this yeah. does. This is what this doesn't do. This is this is why you want this specific model. This is why you don't want this model. Right. Um, so how did you and then I'm, let's let's just start with some background. How did you start with 1911s? What made you go in that direction? Oh God, we're going there. Yeah. I might need whiskey for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh I know you don't drink, but for those that do, this Clyde Mays right here is amazing. You should try it. White monster. White monster. It will, it will kill you faster. Oh, there's no doubt. Oh, yeah. Uh, my kid, you know, my kid Kevin, who works in the shop now, he drinks those. When he first started here, he drank like two or three of those a day. I'm like, dog. Yeah, I try to do one. That shit will kill you. Yeah. He's got to dial that back. So he, he, I think he was buying them by the case at Sam's Club for a while. Oh, yeah. Now he just drinks it, just a case of whiskey. Then he's okay per day. No, he, Kevin doesn't drink much. Once in a while, he'll have a swig, but not often. So how did I get into 1911s? Well, yeah, so with everything available, you went in this direction, and you are known for that specific direction. Yeah, for better or worse. I mean, it was kind of a, it was kind of a fortuitous, you know, set of events. Uh, I was going through a rough patch in life, you know, and traveling. And so I came through Nebraska to visit with Marvel, who had built my competition guns. Mm -hmm. And I actually spent a few weeks here finishing his wife's basement for him. Where were you living? Well, I had a house in Georgia. Oh, okay. but, I was, but I was living on the road. So you, so check this out. You, you'll think this is funny. So I, well, you might not, you might think I was crazy, but so, you know, um, so I left here, it had been 20, 2006. I left here at the end of October 1st, eh, maybe first or second week in November. I'd have to go back and look at my journals to head West to get to Seattle. 
Okay. And I had a friend that lived in Seattle and he wanted me to build a barn. for him. So I was like, okay, if I can make enough money in Nebraska, I can get to Seattle. I can make some money there and then I can get to San Diego. So anyways, between here and, and Seattle, uh, I was driving, you know, and sightseeing and whatever and camping. I didn't have money for a hotel, so I was just camping. And now it's, it's November. It's cold as it's cold as balls out, right? Oh, yeah. And, and I stopped in this little place called Provo, Utah one night. Been there once or twice. Right. And there's a lake there, right? There's a giant lake there. You know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Okay. So on the, on the river side of the dam, there was a KOA campground there. And I stopped there and it was kind of chilly, right? It was a little cool. I stopped there and the campground was closed, but I, I knew already that, you know, you could stay the night and pay in the morning. It was no big deal. So I pitched my tent. I cooked some dinner on the fire. I had my dog bullseye with me and I uh, cooked some dinner and we ate and we got in the tent and about, Oh, I don't know. Three o'clock in the morning, I woke up and I was so cold. I thought I was going to die. And I guess a cold front had come in, you know, over the mountains into Provo. And I was, it was me and the dog in this little bivouac tent, which should have been really warm and, you know, a zero degree sleeping bag. And I'm literally shaking. Like I can't move. I was so cold, Matt, that I took all of my shit, threw it in the back of the truck. I didn't even take the tent down. I just bundled it up. Threw it in the back yeah. of the truck, started the truck. And as I was leaving the campground with the heater on, I left a note, you know, that I stayed here five hours. Call me if you want to get paid and I'll give you a card. <laughs> and the next day the guy calls me and he goes, what happened? Did you get cold? And I was like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, don't worry about it. Happens all the time. We're not going to charge you. You left a clean campground and all that. But man. I mean, I've stayed in some cold places, but that night something happened there and it was nice. It was probably like, you know, 35, 40 degrees when I went to bed Yeah, and I woke up and it was zero and I thought I was going to die. So Sounds about anyways, yeah, yeah. I mean, Utah's brutal. People don't realize how cold it can get there. Um, but anyways, yeah. So, you know, that's, that was when I, when I was here with Bob, with Bob, um, you know, he made the offer because he knew I didn't have much to go home to. And so he told me, he says, you know, why don't you consider coming back to Nebraska and I'll teach you how to build guns. And I was like, "Ah, okay, you know, I'll think about that. And uh, I remember talking to my dad about it when I was driving through Washington on my way to San Diego. And he was like, well, you don't have anything else to do. You know, I mean, something to consider. And Bob had given me my manual to study and I basically memorized it by that point in time. I knew everything, every dimension in there because I'm really, you know, I'm good with numbers. So that wasn't a big deal, but yeah, that was, uh, I didn't, I didn't ever, I mean, I just saw it as an opportunity to, yeah. to change my path. You know, I'd done so many other things. I'd owned so many businesses and, and worked in churches and things of that nature. And I just said, oh, I just want a different path. I wanted to walk away from everything and not, uh, I didn't like living in the city, you know, so I wasn't going to go back to the city. My house was in the mountains, but a, a lot of my work was in the city and I didn't like it. You know, the crime was getting really bad. This was 2006, 2007. 
the crime in Atlanta was getting really bad, you know, post hurricane and, um, traffic was terrible. The taxes were terrible. People were always trying to rob you on job sites. I, I can't even tell you how many times we would go to a job site and there were dudes stealing wire or pipe or appliances, oh, cabinets. You're just like, I'm not trying to kill somebody over some pipes. Just stay out. But they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't stay out. So it was a it was a welcome change to move here to the middle of nowhere where there's nobody. You can just focus on your work. Right. Well, yeah, and that's what I did, you know, for three and a half years. I worked hundreds and hundreds of hours a month. And uh, I think at one time I figured up I'd worked an average of 120 hours a week for three and a half years. That's a lot of work, yeah. you know. Uh, I work less than that now. I only work like 80 hours a week now. So. Oh, that's all. Yeah. yeah. But I do take like four or five weeks off every fall to hunt. So. So was doing 2011s a natural progression for you from the 1911 since essentially the action is the same? Well, well, that's a misconception. You know, people, I, I saw somebody post the other day, oh, you know, he just started doing these three years ago. Nah. I built 2011s from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, we just didn't build them in the volume back then, right? Back back then in the mid 2000s, um, you know, people forget. You'll remember this because we're similar age, but people forget that before 2004, there was no Magpul Dynamics, yeah. right? There were no wide body magazines. None of the, I mean, that stuff existed, right? But you couldn't go to Brownells and buy a 30-round MBX mag. They didn't exist, right, because they were outlawed. And so after, after that AWB sunsetted in 2004, you start, started seeing more proliferation of that stuff, and people became more open to the idea of a wide-body 2011. Uh, there, had, there had been all along, again, this is something that, the young guys won't even think about because they'd never seen one in person. But all along, you had companies like Para, right? Oh, yeah. They made the wide body. Mm -hmm. They also they almost they also made what was called an LDA, which was kind of a neat pistol. That's right. Uh, then Para sold their frames to Springfield, who also made wide bodies for a short period of time. Uh, Caspian made a wide body frame, and you could buy repair kits for magazines from Caspian, so you could get magazines. Uh, and of course you had STI, which is now staccato for those of you who don't know. Um, so after the AWB sunsetted, the proliferation of that platform began to grow and grow. Whereas before it had just been competition shooters, right? The only time you saw a wide body in the wild, it was a competition shooter. So by the time I started building guns, 2007, you know, people were pretty much in the in the groove of on a wide body for self-defense or for carry or whatever. So when I was working for Bob, I built a handful of those from time to time. Um, matter of fact, he signed a deal with a fairly well-known gun club in Arizona to build like 10 of them or something. And for, I don't know if it's fortunate or unfortunate, but I left before that project started. But uh, And then when I started my own shop, I built quite a few of them but they just were never publicized like the single stacks that I was building. Yeah. Right. Because nobody was, nobody was taking uh, a commander STI that I built them and using it to win the national championship or, you know, 
using as a cop or any of that stuff. So that was always there. The other side of it was I always kind of downplayed it because you had to build on an STI frame. Okay. You didn't have a choice. There wasn't, there wasn't Phoenix Trinity. There wasn't uh Chile Keegan's. There wasn't L10. There wasn't rogue tactical. There was none of these companies. It was, you want to, you want a 2011 frame. You got to buy it from STI. Yeah. That's how it was. And at some point, I don't remember what year it was. It was right before we moved. So it had been 2014, 2015. STI changed their dealer status to where you couldn't buy frames unless you had a storefront and carried their guns. Oh, wow. <clears throat> so Brownells couldn't sell them anymore. And it, they just made it very difficult to get their frames, which wasn't a bad move. It just wasn't a great move. What they what they should have done, what the former ownership should have done, is going, okay, we'll sell these frames, but they're going to have a specific serial number as a builder series serial number, hmm. right? Because one of the problems that they have now is if you if you talk to Sean or any of the guys there, they will tell you that they have dudes call up and go, yeah, I have this STI, and it's not working, and I want it warrantied, right? And they take it in, and they're like, uh, nobody here built this gun, right? This, this, this gun was built by somebody off site and it's a hot mess yep. and okay, that's fine, but we're not going to warranty this. Well, but now they have to, because it's on an STI frame, you see, and they don't have any record of what frames they sold out and what frames they used to build guns with. So who's to say yeah. it wasn't built by STI and somebody slightly modified it. Yeah. So it's been a warranty nightmare situation for them. That makes sense. So yeah. So you know, I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty most of the time, anyway. But what they what they could have done was from the very beginning go, okay, we're going to do a builder series of frames, and they're going to have serial number X Y Z instead of S A S, right? And okay, easy. Now we know all these frames, and they could have kept yeah. selling frames, but they made it so difficult in that in that middle part of the second decade of the century here, they made it so difficult to buy their frames that a lot of us were just like, piss on it. I'm not building them. Yeah. You know? Um, and the only way you would get somebody like me to build on one is if you had one yep. because it was just a pain in the ass to get it. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of what caused some of the, Makes delays sense. and all. Yeah. And then once, once other companies, I mean, I've never used some of those other company frames, but uh, once some of these companies started making frames, guys were starting to test the quality of them, you know, and there were, there were some that were and still are just hot garbage mm. and some that are really good, you know, and the ones that are hot garbage guys just stopped buying for the yeah. most part. I mean, there's still some people out there using them, but, you just know that those guns are not going to last or they're, or they'll put a coating on them like, um, like melanite to make them harder. Right. So that they last a little bit longer, but they're not worried about the tolerances. So, but you know, the, the proliferation of the wide body or 2011 style pistols, like everybody likes to call it really, I think stepped up. I think there were two things that caused that, to go crazy, especially in the world that we all run around in now, which is the tactical world, 
right? One was me doing the deal with Chuck Pressburg, mm -hmm. the knife fighter, right? That was like the first thing coming out with the red dot mount. And people were like, oh, well, you can do it. Yeah, you can do it. And then immediately right after that was Staccato changing their name to Staccato and coming out with their duty series, the P model yep. and whatnot. Um, everything optic ready. Everything optic ready, right? And I don't like the optic plate they use, the DPP. I think it's hot, hot garbage. But um, the fact that guys can buy it optic ready is a huge deal. You know, it's a, it's a good deal. And then now, of course, you have companies like Springfield with the Prodigy. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, Rock Island has a wide body. Um, trying to think, uh, Bull Armory has one. I've seen one of those. Um, so yeah, now you got a proliferation of companies coming out. Yeah, I remember talking to Pressburg about 2011s as a duty weapon that he had, and part of the way he was able to do that was he had a. And this is a, a rough quote, basically a traveling minstrel of armors specifically <laughs> to work on the 2011s to keep them running. And part mm -hmm. a lot of that was maintaining magazines. And it's cool. And that was 2014, 2015, when he was talking about this regularly. And here we are. And now, you know what? It's it's they're pretty common now and they run. Oh. It's mm -hmm. awesome. Well, and the magazine thing that that was another that was another reason why you didn't see a lot of us building those guns because again all the whippersnappers out there won't know anything about this but we used to literally have to take epoxy resin fill the magazine with it remachine it out right so that the spring would go all the way down and not bind at the bottom and twist and cause collapsation you know, because the, what would happen is the follower would go down with the spring and when it would get to the bottom where there were no ribs, the follower would flip sideways and dump your magazine inside. Now you've got rounds underneath the follower as yeah. the spring is trying to come up. Oh, it was a nightmare, just a nightmare. Um, you know, and having to grind, grind the feed lips, grind the front of the magazines, all of this garbage. And then of course, with the old, the Gen 1 and Gen 2 STI mags, you had to make the gun not lock back. The gun could not lock back because if it did, it was guaranteed it was going to lock back with one of the magazine, right? So you're at the range or, or you're doing a match or whatever, the gun locks back and they go, make safe and holster. And so you go, drop the slide, drop the mag, bang. Right. Because there was one in the magazine and you didn't think about that because it's locked back and guns only lock back when they're empty. When right? They're empty, but they didn't. They locked back with one in the mag. I forgot about that. Yeah. So actually, the night fighter was the first major pistol in the 2011 style that was ever made like a production run of guns that was ever made to specifically lock back with no rounds in the magazine. And people were like, Oh, you can't do that. You're going to, you're going to cause NDs at the range and ADs. I'm like, Nope, Nope. MBX mags, baby. They solve that problem, you know? And when you look at the MBX mag and how, and how uh, they made the follower drop down, it's like, well, why didn't everybody else do that? Yeah. I don't know. 
Well, because they, this is what happens. Well, I think this is what happens. This is my opinion of what happens. Companies, you've, you've heard me say before, if you don't innovate, you become irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what happens is companies like company A will design a follower and they design it specifically for competition, right? They know it's not going to work for duty or carry or whatever, but they invest, let's say $15,000 in the mold to make this follower. The last thing they want to do is invest another $15,000 in a mold to make another follower. They already got a follower that works. You just have to work within their parameters. And so they just go, no, nah, we're not doing it. So they fail to innovate. Yeah. And then somewhere down the road, somebody like MBX comes along and goes, oh, we'll innovate because we got these things called 3D printers now. And we got 20 of them. Do anything. Stuff. Right. We can literally print anything. And uh, we got 20 of these machines and they can each pump out, you know, a thousand followers a day or whatever it is. And we'll make whatever follower you want, you know? And so, and it's been, it's been fun to work with Adrian over there. He's a super, super smart dude, you know, and he sends me prototype followers and all kinds of stuff over the years. And I get to try them out and tell him I would do this. I would not do that. You know, I really like this feature. I don't like that feature. And so we've, we've really kind of honed it down to get a magazine that works and, and dudes go, well, they're so expensive, man. And I'm like, so are tires. Okay. I mean, well, everyone's, everyone's so used to Glock, right? Look, not everything's going to be a Glock. No. If, if no. you want Glock, stick with Glock. Just go buy one. That's there's nothing wrong with it. I have a couple behind me. Yeah. Nothing wrong with a Glock at all, you know, but if you want a single, a single action trigger, you know, you, which you everything is trying to emulate. Right. I think, yeah, I think I heard first heard that from uh, Pressburg as well. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. Look at everything that agency has done. You know, look at everything that Zev has done. All of these companies, the stuff that they've done to their triggers. It's like, oh, you're trying to get a single action trigger out of a striker fired gun or a double action gun. It's not going to work. And, and granted, some of those triggers are amazing, right? Like I felt some of those triggers and I'm like, well, that's, that's pretty pimp, but they're not a single action trigger. Yeah. Yeah. The question just came up slightly off topic, but it's fresh. Has anyone sent you the Gerson MC 1911 to check over? Hmm. Because I have their high point, high point. That's I always say that high power. There's the original high power right there, the real one, and then there's the Gerson. It's it seems to be refined. I have not yet shot it, but so one of my buddies. Let me look at my phone right quick. Let's see what he says. Is that the EAA Turkish import one? Correct. So one of my buddies got one today, actually. Oh. He just sent me a text today about it. He said, I bought the EAA Turkey import high power because it already had the beaver tail. 500 bucks. Slide to frame fit and trigger are awful. <laughs> Going to do a trigger and probably a barrel fit, depending on how it shoots. 
might get an RDSM from you for a dot. Yeah. Then so I should send mine to him too? <laughs> Probably won't do it. He says, uh, sweet baby Jesus, I hope whoever built this gun learns some more about how to build these. <laughs> so I uh, so <coughs> I haven't had the Gerson 1911. Yeah. I have had the Tysus. Um, I've had the Bull. Of course, I've had multiple Rock Islands. I had a current production Taurus, new in the box. Oh, and I love Brett. Brett's like one of my favorite people in the whole world. And he sent me that gun to review because he wanted the numbers to be able to take them and yeah, show, you know, show the company what we want to change from. Yep. Um, and yeah, Ooh. I said, I said, do you want me to send this gun back to you or what? He's like, no, nah, just keep. <laughs> and I yeah. was like, for what? What am I going to do with this? Yeah. So I don't know. It'll make it a truck gun or a boat gun or something. Who knows? So was it at least functional? The Taurus? The Taurus? Yeah. Maybe with 230 grain ball. Okay. I mean, you now, know, and, yeah. go ahead. Oh, that compared to the, uh, what's the other one? The, the Tysus? No. The Bull? Rock. Rock Island? Oh, Rock, Rock Island. Island. Rock Islands blow the Taurus out of the water. Okay. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're Rock Islands. Um, First of all, this is curious. So the Rock Islands, they hand fit every extractor on the guns that they sell in the U.S., hmm. which I did not know until I started talking to my friend, Sean, who runs the shop there. Um, different Sean than Cicado. Sean, yes. <laughs> but, Armstrong. Uh, yeah. Um, Sean Fairburn is the guy that runs the shop there at Rock Island. And so they hand fit all those extractors, which is a lot. I mean, it's like 100000 a year. Um but they do a really, really good job. Sean and I have talked over the years many times. He's taken notes. I've taken notes. Um, and Rock Island has done a really, really good job of perfecting their process for the guns that they sell in the States. Hmm. Uh, and their guns are very, very consistent. Now they've gone up in price. You know, when I, when I got my first Rock Island, it was, it's 45. It was like 275 bucks. Yep. And people wouldn't look at them. They were like, Ooh, eesh. I even, I bought a uh, paperweight. Yeah. Right. I bought a hard chromed uh, or a nickel. I don't remember what it is now. One of those two weird finishes, 38 super. They had it for like a Christmas special from CDNN and it was 300 bucks. And I was like, I got to have 38 super, whatever, you know? And it's a, dude, it is a box of rocks. It's terrible, you know, but whatever, it's $300 gun. Mm -hmm. So now I think base price on a rock Island is around seven, seven fifty. Really? Yeah. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think they make a, I think they make a, like a base model 45 GI with nothing for like 500. But if you want one of their, what they call their T models with the light rail and the, you know, beaver tail and all that crap on there then you're looking at about 750 and up okay but their but their quality has improved immensely that is so good to hear i love yeah. hearing that yeah it's they've really stepped up their game i would say you know the the nicer rock islands that i've seen are nicer than the springfields that i've seen oh wow that's damning 
Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it's true. The Springfields, you know, and people go, well, they're made in America now, blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool story. Uh, they still use the cheapest men parts they can get. You know, the men parts haven't changed. I've got, I just took a set of Ambies off the Prodigy that I reviewed. Yeah. They're the exact same Ambies that I took off of a loaded model 10 years ago. Oh, wow. They're the same design. They're the same metal. I mean, you know, you can put them in a vise and break them in half. The same crap. Why? It's 2022. Come on, give it the program. Because people will buy it and they will not use their guns to a point of failure. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Man, that's good news to hear, though, about Rock Island. I'm, I'm happy yeah. to hear that. Yeah, they make some, you know, and it's not to say that they their guns can't stand some tweaks, okay? But they're certainly way better quality than they used to. And they're way, from what I've been able to measure and check, they're way better quality than any of the other imports coming in right now. You know, the Bull Armory gun that I had in here was just a hot mess. Hmm. That was a waste of money. The Tysus was just a, just a steaming pile. Um, you know, but, and, and when I say this, what the listeners and the watchers need to remember is I'm not talking about the cosmetics and all that stuff. You like, you like what you like. I'm talking about the hard math, right. That I post up, you know, some of the, some of the videos I post up on my, my YouTube chambers custom, but the vast majority of these are on the Patreon page. And because I want people, you know, you, if you want this information, you need to pay for it. Right. I'm putting the time in. Um, I pay for all the shipping to get the guns to me and the shipping to get the guns back. Oftentimes, like I've got a staccato C2 here that I just did. And the guy said, hey, can you know, how much is it to do the Marvel disconnector cut while it's there? Nothing. You let me review the gun. I'll just do the Marvel cut for you. It's no big deal. Takes 30 seconds, whatever. But. uh, You know, so there's a lot of those numbers on that page. And. You can argue all you want when I say that gun's a hot mess until you look at the math. Yeah. Well, and also the people arguing, do they necessarily have the background or the understanding to be able to to, to defend it? No. Because no. it's above my pay grade. Well, and there's a, there's a lot of dudes that are – quite frankly, there's a lot of dudes that, that want to argue the math that have never owned the guns. So how are you going to argue the math if you've never even owned it? You know, I mean, I've got, so I posted a picture up the other day on Patreon. You, you may have seen it of two relatively expensive wide bodies, right? And I'm going to measure those this week and I'm going to post up the results this week. Um, it's two guns that people are super excited about. I can tell you right now, that the one that came out of Texas that everybody's hyped about that has four different kinds of cocking serrations on it, the slide to frame fit on that is worse than a box stock staccato. I mean, it's loose, Matt. Yeah. Like, like when you take it and you shake it like that, it rattles loose. And that's a $4,900 gun. Loose, you say? <laughs> yeah yeah but this is a 19 
I think it was 1920 or 1919 manufacturer. Nice. So the Black Army. Yeah. Black Army Colt. So I get a question a lot from people online when I do lives and whatnot. You know, what what I just answered this question the other night. What uh, what's a gun, you know, what what's a gun you've sold that you regret the most? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, cool. That, that's a that's a boring question because I've sold a lot of guns over the years that I regret. But question nobody ever asks, which I'm gonna ask you, and I will also answer it too, is What's the one that got away that you should have bought and you didn't? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, 1911 related now, not just any gun, right? Mm -hmm. What's the one 1911 or 2011 or 2019 maybe that you should have bought? You're like, man, I wish I could get that. And you didn't buy it. And now you're like, damn, wish I'd have bought that. And so 1903 doesn't count, does it? No. No. That's a good question. Because when you asked that immediately, I was starting to think of, okay, a bunch of revolvers. There's a, a couple 1903s in there, uh, a couple HKs, but I don't know. Okay, so let's do it like this. Yeah. Let's do it by category. All right, so let's start with revolver. You go first, then I'll go. What's, what's the revolver you should have bought that you didn't? To be honest, I can't think of any specifics. I can think of seeing a bunch of 29s, which I wish I bought, uh, and also decades of ignoring Model 10s, which I should have paid attention to. <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have sold my Model 10s. Yeah, they're so I cool. A, I had a bunch of them, and then, yeah, I let them all go. Model 14s also. Yeah. I had several Model 14 targets that I should have never let those guns pass. Well, this guy right here. This 19 was, it took some, uh, took a little bit of effort to, to get, if I were paying attention years ago, I would have gotten several of those, but yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I would say for me on revolvers, it would be a man here. Um, mm-hmm. I wish I would have, I, I mean, you, you can buy them now, right? yeah. but back in the, back in the late nineties, when I worked gun shows, you could get them for like $300. Oh, really? Nobody, nobody wanted one. They were like, what is that? A man hurting? I don't want none of that. That's yeah. a four again, you know? And now everybody's like, oh, three, four, grand. yeah, yeah. Three, four thousand dollars. You're like, that was a $300 foreign piece of junk. And now you can't pick them up for three or four grand. That's it's right. Nuts. That's right. Yeah. yeah that's, a, that's a revolver I probably should have bought. Um, yeah. Most of my purchases, if it's not a private sale, uh, it's just going on gun broker and just going, okay, this is the specific model and just go and, and browse and browse and browse until I find exactly what I want. Yeah. Most of the time the, the price is too much. It's just like, well, maybe next time. Oh yeah. Well, and I, I should have bought back, back then in the nineties, I should have bought a lot more. Um, I should have paid attention to what was going on about me when I got out of college and I should have put my money that I had back then into transferables, mm-hmm. right? Because like I just saw an AC556 the other day and I asked the guy about it. It's a very nice gun. It was 15,000. 
And I'm like, dude, that's an $8,000 gun. Maybe nine. If it's yeah. really nice and it comes with a bunch of mags, maybe 9,000. And he wants 15,000. Well, in the late nineties, those guns were 2,500 bucks. Nobody wanted to buy that stuff because you had to wait on a tax stamp forever. You know, you had to find a dealer to deal with it for you and to hold it for God knows how long till the ATF got off their ass and got it done. Um, but hindsight being 2020, what I should have done was gone, oh, I want 10 Max, I want 10 Uzis, I want, yeah. you know, I want 20 HK Sears because they were cheap. They were 750 bucks a piece. Yeah. HK Sears are $35,000. You know, I mean, I should have had a box of that shit sitting yep. around. But, you yeah, know, so. I do remember, I don't remember if it was a Series 80 or Series 70. And I don't know. I don't, I don't remember the difference, but, but someone, someone on light fighter had one for sale and the price was just right. I thought, eh, no, I don't need that. I wish I would have gotten that, but yeah. that was, but it was, yeah. And we, and we need to talk about that too. Oh, the series 80 stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the 1911 that I wish I would have bought, this was about 10 years ago. I didn't have any money. I was poor. We had just started a shop and things were, things were going good, but you know, you're putting all your money back into the shop. Yeah. You know, I don't want to spend any money. And a buddy of mine called me and he says, Hey man, Shields has a mint condition 1927 Colt in 38 super. Hmm. And I was like, wow. And I went up there and looked at it and it was, I think it was like $1,800. And I looked at it and I thought, man, that's a steal. That's a very valuable gun. And one of these days, it'll be worth a lot of money. And I just, uh, man, I wrestled over it and wrestled over it and wrestled over it. And I just couldn't, I couldn't justify taking the food out of my kid's mouth to buy yeah. that damn gun, you know? And now, now that gun's worth five, 6,000 bucks, you know? And I should have, I should have done it, but eh, it is what it is. Well, and then all the used, uh, what were they? The HK P7s? Mm -hmm. Hell, Utah, uh, Utah Highway Patrol had them as duty weapons. Those were for yeah. sale. Yeah, I had a, I had a squeeze cocker. They sucked. I just want one to put up here. Oh, yeah, they're cool guns. Actually, the cooler one, if you could find one, is the P-13. Yes, it is. The double stack, right? Yes, it is. That's a really cool gun. But yeah. those 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 bring a mad premium. Yep. Uh, I got a buddy of mine that has one new in the box. He actually has new in the box P13 with an extra threaded barrel. Oh and wow! I asked him about it one day. I'm like, "What? What would you take for that?" And he goes, "Not a penny less than seven thousand." I'm like, "That's a lot of money." Yeah. <laughs> for a gun I'm never going to shoot, right? Yeah. Because it has a horrible trigger pull. But, you know, hindsight again. So what are those differences between the Colt series 70s and 80s? And so if someone were to buy, if they, yeah. if they wanted to get, if they wanted to jump on Gunbroker or go to a gun uh, a pawn shop or whatever and find some used 1911, an older model, what should they be looking for? They should be looking for a pre- like, like if they want a Colt in particular, they should look for a pre, I'm going to say pre-1955 Colt commercial. Oh. If they, if they want really high quality parts and stuff. Yeah. They fit, 
<laughs> you know, the fit is going to be vintage cold, mm-hmm. right? I have a, I have a new in the box, 1951 commercial model in the safe behind me. And, you know, it's numbers are okay. They're not fabulous. They're not, you know, blow down the doors. Uh, Brandon has the matching one for it. And I measured it and it's the same way, you know, I mean, the, it's standard, but the parts, the parts on them are really good. You know, yeah. they were made, they were made to function 230 grain ball ammo. They do that very well. They'll function some lead. They'll function some hollow points depending on the design, but they don't have the 80 series safety system. Now the 80 series safety system is basically a firing pin block. Okay. You know, it's, it's very akin to um, uh, any of the striker fired guns. They all have firing pin blocks, right? Where they have to be activated that yep. you have to push the plunger up before it'll go. Same thing on a, on a Colt 80 series or any 80 series, because there's been a number of companies that make an 80 series based on the Colt design. You have two levers inside the frame. One is activated by the trigger and one is, and, and that pushes up, which deactivates the plunger in the slide, which allows the firing pin to go forward. And if they're tuned properly, there's nothing wrong with the 80 series parts. They work, they work fine. If they're not tuned properly, they'll leave you in the street dead. Mm. All right. Because they will not allow the firing pin to fall. Um, some years later, I, Kimber adopted a similar system. It's, it's a little different by a guy named Swartz who actually designed his system for Colt. And Colt was like, nah, fam, we're not doing none of that. And then later, when Colt had to do the 80 series parts because of the, the lawsuits and all that jazz, you know, liabilities, then they went with their own 80 series parts and forgot about Schwartz. The Schwartz system in the Kimber uses the grip safety to kick it up. Okay. Okay. So you're not dependent on the trigger to push two different levers. The grip safety itself kicks one piece up. So it's much simpler. Yeah. It kicks one piece up to disengage the plunger in the slide. So the firing pin goes bang. Hmm. And there's pluses and minuses to both systems, right? On the, on the Kimber uh, Swartz system, the plus is it's one piece in the frame kicking up. Yeah. Right. A lot less, a lot less headaches. You're going to grip the gun. It's going to disengage. It's going to let it go. Boom. This advantage is the little piece that pops up is really thin. Mm. Right, it's like a little tiny, little tiny finger that pops up. So if that gets bent, well, then you're you're out of the game, right? Um, the downside to the Colt 80 series is there's two pieces in the frame that have to work in conjunction with each other to kick to kick the top piece up, and it's activated by the trigger, so it has to be timed properly. So if it doesn't kick it up high enough, it's not going to it's not going to make it go bang. Or if it does make it go bang, it's going to be eating up the firing pin and the plunger inside because the, fu- the plunger goes up like this and yeah. there's a notch in the firing pin. The plunger has to go clear before the firing pin can fire. If the plunger doesn't clear, then the firing pin will still sometimes go bang, but as it does, it'll scrape metal off that plunger. Okay. And it'll cause little burrs on the plunger. So there's ways to tune the 80 series and I've done it. My buddy, Scott, who lives in Lincoln, he's like, dude, you're the master of 80 series. And I'm like, well, I don't know about that, but um, I can make an 80 series trigger pull feel as good as a non 80 series, but it's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. 
So then what about a 70s? That's just a plain old Colt. Okay. With no, with no fire and pin safety. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, so Colt had, you know, they had their, their government models, their, their military models early on. Right. And then I don't remember when it happened. I think it was in the early fifties, maybe it was the late forties. They had what they called their commercial model, which, you know, your gun is that if it has a C in front of the serial number or behind mm-hmm. the serial number. And then, so that ran through, I don't know, the late sixties. And then they had the 70 series, right? Which was for the 1970s. Yeah. And then in late 79, I think it was, or early 80, they introduced the 80 series, which had the safety parts in it. And off we went. Yeah. Was the commercial variant any better or worse quality than everything else that was being produced? Well, I think it was probably a little bit more refined than the, let's say the 40s, you know, the 30s and 40s model Colt Model A1s. Yeah. Because they were building those for the war and they were like, we need guns. Throw them together. Throw them together. Baby rattles. Do do they function? Yes. Okay, let's get them out the door. Yeah. Right. And if you you look at like, um, well, I mean, you live in Utah, you could go to the Browning Museum and see this. Uh, But if you look at the early, early guns, the 1911s, the 12s, the 13s, right, before World War I, those guns are really well made, mm-hmm. right? They're really, really nicely fit. Are they fit to the same tolerances I fit a gun to today? No, but they're twice as good as the, as the uh, commercial models and, and whatnot that came out later because, you know, Colt had a contract for 500 of the Marine Corps yeah. or whatever. Right. And so they hand built those guns and John Browning was there and he was watching them do it. And then they had a contract for a thousand to the army. And so they hand built those guns and they were really, uh, aside from some metallurgical problems that they had with the slides, right. Uh, They had some soft slides and whatnot that they had to go back and and heat treat in certain areas. Um, But those guns were really, really high quality. Now the problem you run into is unless you're willing to pay 10, 15, $20,000, you're not going to get one of those in mint condition original, right? Cause there were few of them. Yeah. And when world war one kicked off, man, they ushered them all into, into service. Every, every 1911 they could find, they put into service. So, you know, a lot of those guns, those, those pre world war one guns that you find, they're pretty well clapped out. And if it's not, like I say, you're going to pay five digits for it. Yeah. The one I have, uh, my dad purchased, I think he was in the Marine Corps when he did, and it was a refurbished U.S. Army one, and it was 1970-something when he purchased it, mm-hmm. and, and it was super, super cheap, mm-hmm. but it's, it was his, that was his go-to for, for home defense stuff forever. Oh, yeah. Well, and what's funny about that, about the super, super cheap thing, is in the 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, um, you could buy CMP refer, refurbished Colt 45 national match pistols if you shot at Camp Perry. Hmm. Right. And they were like 65 or $70. They were cheap. Now the CMP is selling those guns again. And I don't even want to talk about the price. No, no. <laughs> it's like, get real, man. Yeah. 
I mean, I understand the CMP is a business and they're trying to make money to stay in business. It's not in the business of raping people, though. Come on. <laughs> well, it's like M1 well, they Grands. Are. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's like the M1 Grands. You know, when the M1 Grands first came out through the CMP, if you were registered and you shot a match, you could get one for like four or 500 bucks. And then they started going, well, there's certain ones that are really good. And we're going to set those aside for collectors to buy and all this. Man, you can't touch a collector grade grand now for less than three grand. It's insane. And I mean, I would like to own another one. I sold mine years ago. Hmm. I would like to own another one, but I'm not going to pay you $3,000 for an M1 grand. You know, that's going to hang on my wall back here yep. and look cool. Just not doing it. So, yeah. Early 2000s, I found a stripped receiver, an M1 stripped receive, receiver on Gunbroker again. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this would make a really cool project. Mm -hmm. And I did it. And I assembled it. And it functioned. And it shot. And it went ping. And I sold it. Yeah. <laughs> so those, so Springfield Armory actually sold. When you go to Camp Perry, you could buy um, Springfield Armory M1 Grand double lug receivers, right? They'd lug up front and back. And that's what they used to make the national match guns with. They were like, I don't know, $3.99 for a receiver, which was a bargain. Man, I wish I'd have bought one of those. It was a cool project. I really enjoy putting it together, finding all the parts and cobbling it together and then having a functional weapon and then kind of went, okay, now what am I going to do? Was it, was it easier or more complex than building an AR-15? I think it was easier. Yeah. I think it was easier because it seemed, I don't know. So having been through multiple different armor classes where we bring it down to ball bearings and springs. Yeah. I think the, the Garand was easier. Yeah. There's less little tiny parts that could fly across the shop. Absolutely. Yeah. You know? and, and, and I putting together an AR for me, I, I, there are certain tricks that I do to, so things don't fly. I didn't have to do that with the Garand at all. No, no, no. I, the guy's joke, Kevin's an AR aficionado. You know, he went to school for that stuff and, they joke every time I try to put an AR together. I'm like, don't worry. I got my extra bag of pins here. Yeah. My detent pins. Because <laughs> I'm going to lose one or two of them. Absolutely. In, in the process, you know. Well, typically on the uh, on the pivot or the take, no, on the pivot pin specifically, putting in the spring and the detent, uh, what I do is I use a credit card to apply pressure and then just slide the, the pin yeah. in. Yeah. Um, funny. Oh, yeah. And I don't know. Maybe you can tell me this because I don't know what the answer is. I'm not a, I'm not an AR aficionado. Uh, I just shoot the damn things. But what? So on the pivot pin, right where the spring and the detent go in. Yeah. What, what's the little hole that's in the in that the cross hole that's in there for? That's what's a that good for? question. That is a good question. I don't know. I have Could no it idea. What that's so for? just in case you accidentally put the put the things in the wrong order, so you can somehow, I don't know. I don't know. Because it, it wouldn't be oil because you don't want oil in that channel. No, and it's not a retainer, mm -mm. right? Like one time I thought, well, maybe they put that in there so you can push it all in and then retain it. No, it's too flat for that. Yeah. So, I mean, the only other thing I could think of thinking about that over the years is maybe it's for moisture to get out 
And that's what and someone that's just what said. Someone just, oh, there we go. Stephen Callie. Yeah, actually, was, the real the real reason that little hole is there is for weight reduction. <laughs> it balances out the rifle really well. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if someone going to, to circle, circle back, I, I can't say that anymore. So to go back to our, our original discussion about the 70s, 80s series of 1911s, um, if someone were in the market for a 1911, what are some of the things they should be looking for? For you personally, if you're going to buy a 19, if, if you were to just go and buy something off the, off a, out of a shop or off yeah. a shelf, what are the things you'd be looking for? I think it would depend. It would depend on a couple of factors. First of all, what's your price, right? Like what's your ceiling? Secondly, what is the purpose of the gun? So whenever somebody calls me and they're like, hey, Joe, I want you to personally build a gun. I go, okay, well, first of all, if you're calling me, I know that price is not your concern. Yeah. But what is your purpose of the gun? Right. And you and I went through this when I, when we did your single stack. Yeah. You're like, oh, I want a classic single stack, but I want, I want a light rail. And I'm like, this is not classic, man. (laughs) That's optic light rail. Right. I want an optic. I want a light rail. I want an ambi. I want, Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, okay, sure. That's yeah, that's totally well, classic. classic being five inch. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And single stack and 45. Right. Yeah. So that would be the first question I would ask. What is the purpose of your gun? Because I mean, for some of us, right. Like I will carry a full size single stack 45 with iron sights because I'm proficient with it. I've shot them enough. I know how the gun works. I'm, Comfortable making shots to 25 yards, even 50 yards with it doesn't bother me at all. But you may not, you you know, you may not shoot 50,000 rounds a year. And that may not be a viable option for you as a person wanting to carry the gun. So you may need something a little bit smaller, right? You may need something that has a red dot. There's a lot of these companies out there, and this is what we've learned the past. How long has my Patreon been going? Two or three years? It's been a couple years, yeah. Yeah, it has. Well, as long as that's been going, there's been one thing that's really shined out to me that people have learned through the process of measuring all these guns. All of these makers across the board, all the semi-custom makers, we won't name them all, but you know who they are, semi-custom means they have custom in their name and they talk about one man and one gunsmith and one gun and all this stuff. All of these makers, by and large, if you take their guns and you measure them, right, you measure multiples of them like I've done, they all measure essentially the same as the new in the box 1951 Colt that I have. Okay, so the tolerance level of these guns from 1950 to 2020, 2022 now, has not changed. Mm-hmm. Some of the parts have gotten better, yeah. right? I mean, on some of the guns, some parts have regressed. If you talk about, you know, bad mem parts, well, that's a regression. Yeah. Some of the parts have gotten better, like Staccato is using actual quality bar stock parts now. Nighthawk is using quality bar stock parts. Um, so 
the parts progression has gotten better in some regards and the cosmetics have certainly gotten more appealing unless you're a pure classic guy, right? If you're a per, pure classic guy, there's nothing more beautiful than a hot blued Colt, right? With the walrus fat and all the stuff that they use. It's just, it's, it's pure sex. But if you like newer stuff, you like colors or you like CNC cuts and all that, we're living in the, in the heyday of that stuff. So I think it depends purely on what you want, what you're going to do with the gun and, and the price point of it. That being said, they're all basically the same internally, yeah. right? Some are going to be better than others on a given day, right? You're going to get a, you're going to get a Wednesday gun from one company and you're going to get a Friday gun from that same company. It just happens, right? You're going to get a Monday gun and you're going to get a Tuesday gun. And that's why when I do the reviews, you know, I'm always very clear. This is a sample of one from yeah. this company and it may or may not be indicative of what you buy at your local gun store. Now, as time has gone on and I've gotten to publish more of these numbers, more of these samples, and I'm working on the, the spreadsheet, the, the Excel spreadsheet that's going to lay out all the guns I've reviewed so far publicly. And it's going to blow people's minds. People are going to be like, oh, my God. Um, but as time has gone on and we've gotten more samples from each company, now we're able to establish a baseline and go, oh, that's completely normal. Right. Or. Oh, that's not normal. That was a that was an anomaly right there. Like the ACW that I did that had the frame rails that were crooked. Okay, I've had several ACWs in since that didn't have that problem. Yeah. That was an anomaly, right? So we give that caveat, sample one. Um, but over time, as we get those numbers, like the staccatos, we've measured a ton of staccatos now. They're very consistently the same, right? Which means they're probably going to have the same long-term issues or short-term issues, depending on what it is. And so it gives the consumer the ability to go, well, I'm going to spend my money on that because I don't care about that stuff. I just like the way it looks. Or I'm going to spend my money over on this one because I don't care about looks, but I want the performance. Yeah. And so what I, what I tell people is if you're, you know, let's say you're not in the position to buy one, one of our guns or whatever, and you're just wanting a solid pistol, if you're buying a double stack, buy a staccato, period. Buy the staccato P. It's a steel frame gun. Yeah. It's got decent numbers. Yeah. It's going to last a long, long time, right? And they're not expensive. What are they, 2400 bucks retail or something? Yep. Really for, for what it is, it's not expensive. Right, yeah. exactly. You're getting quality parts. You're getting a good warranty, right? As long as you don't do something retarded like chunk board it, um, you're getting a good warranty. And they just make a they make a solid product for the money. If you're if you're wanting a single stack, man, pick one. Yeah, because they're all about the same. You know, I mean, you can buy a Rock Island that measures just as good as a forty five hundred dollars semi-custom. Yeah. So you got to decide if the cosmetics or the name matter more to you than the performance. It's funny because I and yep, I go to Gun Broker a lot. I, I browse frequently and I go, you know what? Single stack commander size. That's really appealing. I, I, I want to go. I, I want to find that. And I, I always am forgetting. I have it. I don't need another. The little Dan Wesson TCP. This is just, it's just right. Yeah. But no, I want more. No. And, and Dan Wesson is one of those companies that they used to be a sleeper, right? 
we would say, guys would say, well, what's the best single stack for the money, Dan Wesson? Because you could buy a Dan Wesson for 12, 1500, maybe 1800 bucks for the really high end ones. And they were the sleeper. They used bar stock parts. You know, they used uh, good quality barrels, sliding frames were all really good quality. I don't, I don't think Dan Wesson makes a single model under 2000 now. So this one a few years ago was 18. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But for what it is, it's a good gun. I, right. that, that shouldn't be an issue. No, and I think, I think still, <laughs> bang for the buck, if you just want a, a classy looking single stack, bang for the buck, the Dan Wessons are hard to beat, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. So this specific, and I, I posted about this on Instagram not too long ago, but yeah, this specific guy, I was thinking, okay, I want to get ambi safety. I want to get forward serrations. I want to get optic. No, I don't. I'm going to leave it as is. If I get a second one, maybe I'll do all that. But you know what? This as is, it's just right. I don't need all that. You can add too much stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And all the sights on this work just fine. Yeah. And they're irons. Amazing. The heck? That's just silliness. Yeah, I don't, uh, I was laughing at myself the other day. I was shooting a gun that Kevin built that has iron sights on it. And I was ringing steel from 2550, yeah. just impunity. And I mean, there's no doubt about it. I can make more headshots at 50 with a red dot. Yeah. Right? Just flat out. If I've got one dialed in, it's just money all day long. Yeah. But even if I'll be 47 in a week, actually less than that. Geez, like three days. Um, even at approaching 50 and wearing reading glasses to work, you know, I can still ring, ring to gone. Matter of fact, Kevin was laughing at me. So he finished building this gun. Yep, there you go. He finished building this gun. It's a nine millimeter government model, um, iron sights. And I had shot a few mags through it. And we have that gong at 200 yards, you know, uh, here on the farm. And it's across the river. So I had one mag left. And I said, ah, I'm going to go shoot the gong. And he's never seen me do this in person. A lot of people have seen me do it on Instagram or whatever, YouTube. I walk over to the 200-yard line. And I put the gun up. And I just go, boom, ding. And he's like, holy shit, dude cold i go yeah he goes i gotta do it so he shot the next eight rounds and never hit it (laughs) some people just need a dot yeah i i just i've shot that 200 yard gong so many times that i know where it's at you know and i know where to hold any any specific gun to hit and it's just a matter about sight alignment and trick control yeah it's 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 funny because I have a video where, uh, who was it? It was Blowers, Pressburg, and Fisher were talking about the secret. And they were acting like this is an actual secret. And they're kind of kind of secretive about it. And yeah, the secret, yeah, you just you press the trigger. Don't disturb the sights. Right. What? That's all there is to it. It's craziness. So in your opinion, though, as someone who puts together 1911s, 2011s, wide bodies, single stacks, nine mil 45. Why would anyone want a single stack 45 
when you can have so many more, so many more bullets. I, I personally have a, I have an answer to that. Small hands. Oh, that's true. That's true. And the 45 recoil impulse is not an unpleasant. It's not a bad recoil. Well, that depends on what you're shooting. Oh, you know, like the other day, one of my, one of my longtime friends, he had a bunch of white and white and brown box ball ammo. Right. And he sent it to me. He's like, I'm never going to shoot this stuff. My days of that are over. So he sent me like 600 rounds of this ammo. Sweet. So Kevin just finished the 45 for a guy for a client in Kansas city. And, uh, we were out, we were shooting it. I says, all right, let's see how it runs with full power ammo. So I shot some, of course I've shot, I've shot this hardball ammo many, many times, you know, it's yeah. an eight, it's, it's a two thirty grain round nose bullet, uh, moving at around 850 feet per second. So I shoot it and I, I, you know, I'm holding the gun pretty tight cause I know what's up. So I give it to Kevin to shoot it and he fires the first shot and he's never in a year and a, in a year and four months of working here, he's never shot a 45 with full on full power ball ammo. Oh, right. Cause we just don't shoot a lot of that stuff. Yeah. It's not good for the wrists. So especially with, with as much as we shoot. So he shot it. He shot one shot. He looked over at me with these big eyes. He was like, Holy crap, dude. What is that? <laughs> I said that that's real ammo, bro. I mean, that, that's they all fall with ball. That's the ammo right there, you know. And uh, I says you have to keep in mind that a ton of the companies, well, all of them are pretty much across the board. Dan Wesson may be one of the only ones that doesn't do this. A ton of these companies are still prescribing to Browning's original spec of a twenty-pound mainspring and a sixteen-pound recoil spring in a gun that shoots forty-five. Why? You're just trying to brutalize yourself. You know, you like being tortured. So I don't think, I mean, like, I would never let Heidi or my daughter shoot a full house 45. I just wouldn't. Yeah. Right? It's going it's to turn them off really fast. And there's no point in doing that. Um, the other, you know, nine millimeters, they love that. 38 Super, they love that. But to answer your question, single stack or wide body, I think, Part of it is concealability, right? I mean, I, I carry I carry the the night stalker quite a bit if I'm going somewhere where I feel like I need two magazines in one gun. Um, but 99% of the time I carry my YC squared, which is the same set. Mm -hmm. You know, and I this is just my personal opinion. Your mileage may vary. You're an officer, so it's different for you. But as a civilian, you know, going to the gas station to get a to get a hot dog and a soda. If I'm, if I find myself in a situation, right. Exactly. This, this is what I'm carrying right now. Right. If I find myself in a situation where I need more than nine plus one, I probably should have brought a rifle and some buddies with rifles or a 12 gauge. You know, I should have brought my S 90 because Holy crap. I can do a lot of work with 10 rounds. You well, know? you know, we had a discussion about this, um, and it was basically along the lines of, okay, we can, we can go sky's the limit. We can go from the smallest little tiniest little capacity to 20, 30 rounds in a magazine 
how do you determine what fits your mission? How do you do, at what point do you stop and go, well, just one more, one more mag. Well, when it starts affecting my life, that's when it starts. That's when I, I need to determine, okay, we're, we're stopping now. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, a guy could walk, I could walk around with my, with my axle belt on all day long. Right. And my Safari land RDS holster and my knife fighter and my regulator with 30 round sticks in every hole for what? What are you, 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 you on your way to Afghanistan? Yeah, exactly. No, I'm going to Casey's to get a piece of pizza and some, and some gas. And so, and what I bring up is when I'm on duty, okay, I'm carrying, I used to carry three spares. Now I carry two. My mission is different from when I'm on duty and off duty. So if I'm seeking, if I'm seeking out issues, if I'm seeking out law lawbreakers, if I'm seeking out, if I'm responding to problems as a cop and I'm carrying that much when I'm off duty, I personally don't feel the need to carry all that because I'm not actively seeking it. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's my own assessment and everyone needs to make their own assessment for themselves. And there are people are going to go, no, I'm going to, I'm going to, going to be carrying three of these and two of those and okay, have at it. Yeah. Well, one of the, one of the baddest dudes I've ever met, his name is Andy Anderson. Andy was, they, they called him the last real Sergeant major of the fist special forces. And he lives in Wyoming. Now he builds guns and he's a crotchety old 70 plus year old guy now. And we talk regularly. He's a dear friend for years. Andy's carry guns, plural was a Keltec P32 in each pocket. And I'm like, why, why two of them? He goes, cause in case one of them jams, I got a backup or I run out of bullets. I got a backup. Or I just feel like shooting with two hands at once. That's right. <laughs> Have you ever seen yeah. the matrix? Right. You know, and he's like, you know, I, this is how I roll. Uh, I had another friend in Atlanta. He carried in each pocket a North American arms 22 Magnum revolver. I'm like, dude, you can't even shoot one of those. You got to carry two. Two is better than one. I'm like, whatever, man. Just at the time I was carrying a Kimber, a Kimber 1911, a Yonkers Kimber. I'm like, that's all I need. I don't need two 22 Magnums. I had had a really cool conversation. As a matter of fact, this, we might've even had a couple podcasts about it with Daryl Bulky talking about what his setup was it might have changed a little but he was carrying a semi-auto appendix but in his pocket in one of his front uh, pants pockets was a little tiny snubby and that's for your quick down and dirty we we, we're going to get out of here and and shoot right that makes sense i I, I can get i can get behind that i don't necessarily see the application for me all the time do i see an application for me at some point absolutely and yeah. it's definitely not something I'm going to throw away. No, no. Um, you know, the, I think with those little Derringers, you got to be careful. I've, I've often fancied and wanted, I should just buy one, one of those Bond Arms double barrel Derringers. Mm-hmm. Here's the problem. They come in calibers like 357 Magnum. Yeah. Why? 44, 44 Magnum. What in the hell are you doing with that? I'll do 44 Special and I'll do 38. Right. Right. But, you know, I mean, personally, I would be more attracted to that gun if it was 22 mag. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because 22 mag, 
<laughs> that's a that's a formidable little round yeah. at at bad breath distances. Yeah. You know, and not only that, it's loud as hell. <laughs> right? You got you got a bunch of little mouse guns over here on the side. Right. I'm sure you got some 22 shorts. You got a 22 short over there. I don't think I have a 22 short. I definitely have a 25. I have. So uh, 22, 22 mag, 327, 25, 32, 380, 327. Yeah. I would bet that that 22 mag over there is as loud as any of those. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah. I mean, but let's see here. This beast the Walther WMP, their 22 mag. Fun to shoot, super hella loud. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but it's so, I, I love the size of it. What's that thing hold, 22 rounds? This is only, uh, this is 15. 15? Yeah, but it's a it's like a it, full-size feel. Right. So I really, really, really like that. Yeah. But then we can contrast that to the Taurus, Um Dang it. What is it? It's the, the one that everyone loves. Everyone loves this. And I can't remember with the model. Someone's going to tell me quick, someone. Come on, you guys, you're, you're letting me down. TX 22. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And this is, this is a, a Taurus product that man, everyone that's ever touched one has just absolutely adored it and not bad for a semi-auto 22. To answer Stephen Kelly, no, it would not be cool in a 32 Smith and Wesson Long. That is an anemic caliber that should go away. Oh, I like 32. It's fun. Where? Let's see here. Do I have any next to me? Matter of fact, no, I'm carrying 327s. Yeah. How do you like that caliber? 327? Okay, so. I have a gel test that I still need to edit where we went. Uh, we covered 327 Fed Mag, gold dots we carry. And then we tried some 327 uh, Buffalo Bore. Then we tried 32 Long and we tried uh, 32 h Magnum. Um, 32 Long did pretty well for penetration. It, oh, it yeah. was sufficient. Yeah. Uh, and also the, the, the uh, what do you call them? The uh, wide cutters. They were, they were impressive. I've, I've become a big, big fan of wad cutters the more I study up on them and learn more about what pistol rounds actually do. And then also talking to people like Mark Fricky, who he has so much focus just on wad cutters and what they do. It's really, really cool to, to, to hear his input on this and which of the wad cutters are working better than others. Uh, like the gold medal match, uh, 38 wad cutters are doing well. The, the, the Buffalo boars are, are, are performing well. And the only reason why I, I became so fascinated with them though, is just because of my use of snubbies because if I'm using a snubby and using something that it relies on ex or on velocity for expansion, that little tiny barrel might not provide it. So that wad cutter is going to be cutting out a nice little hole and provide me with that needed penetration. And it's easy to shoot and it's accurate. It shoots to sights. So it's, it's funny how many people kind of poo poo the idea, but it actually, it's, it works It works well. Oh yeah. And if you take a, <laughs> hopefully I don't get in trouble for telling people this. If you take a hollow base wad cutter lead and you load it backwards. I think Fricky did that. 
I think he has, I think he has some, some stats on that. He actually has a book coming. It but will, he, that like on small critters around the farm, mm-hmm. it will flat out kill the shit out of stuff. Oh, I believe I it. How, I don't know how it does on humans. Right. But on small, you know, around here, the farm and whatever we get, all kinds of stuff, coons mm-hmm. and possums and coyotes and stray, you know, wild cats, feral cats and stuff like that, bro. <laughs> it'll, it'll cut a coon in half. I believe it. Yeah. I mean, it just flat out works. It's just fun. Yeah. I mean, you can load up, you know, if you're, if you're hand loading at all, which I highly advise for 38 special, it's a lot of fun. You know, you can load up, 2.8 grains of bullseye with a, with a lead water cutter. And man, that's a pleasant experience to shoot. Now, back in the day, I don't know that you could find much of this anymore unless you're on one of the bullseye forms, but you could buy Winchester gold medal match um, or federal gold medal match or Winchester white box match 38 special wad cutter, right? And it was a 148 grain wad cutter bullet. Out of, I had several Model 14s and Model 10s that had been customized. Out of those guns, getting a five-shot group into five-eighths of an inch at 50 yards, easy day. Yeah. So I don't know if you've kept up or if you're, if you're if it's within your same circle. There is a brand new wad cutter that just was released. Oh, man, I wish I could remember more stats. I haven't purchased any myself. I have a lot of Buffalo Boar and Federal Gold Medal Match. I'd be interested in getting some, but uh, I guess there are, a company has just started uh, manufacturing a new, I think it was a 148, but I don't recall. Yeah. But, but yeah, just cool that that people are, are, are seeing the need and actually uh, providing it because it's there are definitely there are three schools of thought there's the school of thought that doesn't even think of them wide cutters there are those that think it's the stupidest thing in the world and then there are those of us that go oh get me some of that and those that people like it have bought it all and we can't find it anywhere oh yeah absolutely i mean there used to be years ago when you go to camp perry there would be guys that would have ammo for sale you know on the slide they would just put it up on the bulletin board it wasn't illegal or nothing and you could buy a case of 30, 30 special wad cutter for 150 bucks, 200 bucks. That's a thousand rounds. That's a lot of 38 wad cutter. And that's revolver. We're going to be shooting it a bit, a bit slower too. Right. Now, a lot of these guys were shooting model 50, model 51s or model 52s, Smith and Wesson model 52s, or they were shooting, um, uh, Colt 1911s that were in 38 special, but yeah, super accurate ammo, a lot of fun to shoot. I love shooting a 38 special. Matter of fact, I have one coming from Dave. I wish Dave was on here tonight. I like Dave. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave's building me. He built a, this gun <laughs> a couple years ago and I saw pictures of it and I fell in love. So I called him and I said, Dave, uh, how do I get one of those? And he says, well, you send me the gun and this amount of money. And I said, okay, let me find a model 10. So it's a, I found a new in the box 10 dash four, right? One of our, one of our industry friends gets a lot of police trade-ins and stuff. And he got like a truckload of new in the box 10 dash fours in. Cool. So I bought one 
had him send it directly to Dave. And he's doing the three inch slab side conversion with a gold line front side, custom rear side, action job, all that stuff, doing a round butt conversion to it. And then he's doing the high polish blue that he does with the nighter blue uh, small parts. And then I got some grips from Eagle that uh, they're rosewood. And so he's fitting those to the gun. And then after I get those, after I get the gun back, I have some really special, unique grips that are made out of a white material. That That's not legal. <laughs> I don't know if it's legal or not. It's, it's concrete. It's made out of concrete. Right. Very special. Yeah. Uh, Georgia Arms is the manufacturer of that uh, 38. Oh. So oh. 38 special snub nose, 147 wad cutter, 20 rounds, 24 bucks out of a one and seven eighths inch barrel you're looking at the velocity of 750 feet per second yeah yeah so georgia arms i have a lot of history with that company oh cool when we used to go to gun shows georgia arms was a big dealer there this was late 90s i actually have cases and cases and cases of georgia arms ammo downstairs oh because you could buy a bag of 100 357 magnum 158 grain semi-jacketed hollow points for like $15. And I was just like, I need all the ammo. Yeah. So I got 308, I got 357, I got 45. I just have thousands of rounds. And it's very consistent, very good ammo. I'm glad to hear they're still in business. Yeah. I might need to buy a couple boxes. They're not as cheap as they used to be, but at least they're still in business. Yeah. And with these, I'm probably not going to shoot it a ton. No. But it's nice to nice to see that that it will function, that it will beat to sights, and to be aware of, oh, that's what it's like. Okay. Sweet. So Stephen Kelly asked, Joe, how hard would it be to persuade you to build a 38 special log gun? Uh, never going to happen. <laughs> I did it one time. I put probably 250 hours into that gun. And I actually, it's a funny story. Guy called me and he said, uh, I would like you to build this gun for my friend. I'm going to die. I have cancer. And I want you, when you finish the gun, to send it to him. And I was like, this is awkward, but okay. Uh, yeah, I'll do it. So anyways, I built that gun for his friend, sent it to him. I sent it to him about probably six months after, after the owner of it had passed away and he got it. Of course he had to go to the FFL to get it. And uh, they called him and told him they had a, a gun there for him. And he didn't know what was up because nobody had told him anything oh. and, and he got it. And he was, he was blown away. It was pretty neat. So why was it such a pain in the ass though? Building that well, gun specifically. Because you're trying to run an extremely, extremely low pressure rimmed cartridge through a gun that was designed to shoot non-rimmed or semi-rimmed high pressure cartridges. So you have to do a lot of massaging of the parts. The barrel has to be fit a certain way. You actually, I had to take both front lugs off the barrel because you can't have any potential faulty lock up as the gun's trying to come back and you i think i used a 
I'd have to go look at my notes, but I think I used a 20 pound mainspring and a six pound recoil spring in that gun. Oh, it was getting that gun to run was a nightmare. And then of course you have to have special magazines, which of course he owned and he sent them to me. Um, they're like a hundred bucks a piece, but they're a nine millimeter, a cold nine millimeter magazine that's been modified to take a rimmed cartridge. Hmm. And, oh, it's a mess. So did it have like a channel in the back or something or? No, it has, it has slots in it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But the, but the rim can go down in there and then it, the feed lips are all slotted up so hmm. that the, the round can feed out of it. The rim can come out of the case. Clark actually makes them still. And if you get on Clark, uh, Clark's website, I think they make them or they carry them. When you look at them, you'll be like, oh, those took a lot of time to make. Yes. Yes, they do. It was just a very, very problematic gun. But you can say you did it. Yeah. And it was it was the last the last request of a dying man. So I wasn't going to tell him no. Yeah. You know? uh, matter of fact, that gun. Um, you know, none of us, if you, if you don't believe this, you're, you're just an idiot, but none of us know everything, right? Uh, even, even, you know, myself who've been building guns nonstop for 15 years, I don't know everything. Um, so that gun, I leaned heavily on a couple of friends of mine. One is my, my dearly departed friend, Jerry Kiefer, because he had built a bunch of those back in the day. One is my friend, Mike Curtis, who is one of the top five 1911 builders in the world. And then uh, my friend, Fred Tots, who is a machinist, who I taught how to build guns. And he is kind of taking it, taking it, you know, is a go to build bullseye guns now for people. But uh, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Damon or Stephen, it would be a last request. And then I would still say no. <laughs> and the, the 38 Special, this is something that guys don't realize out of a semi-automatic pistol, is a lot like um, the 32 Short that a lot of guys back in the, well, in the, in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, a lot of guys started experimenting with the 32 short in, uh, was it the Walther GSP? I don't know. I think it was the Walther GSP target pistol that had the conversion top for a 32 short. And they were shooting it in bullseye because it had really light recoil and they could use it for center fire. <laughs> because at the time, Nine millimeter hadn't caught on for center fire yet, mostly because you have to push a nine millimeter bullet really fast to make it accurate. Dudes don't understand that, but you do. If you run a soft nine millimeter, unless it's a 147 grain bullet of a specific type, it's not going to be very accurate, especially, you know, specifically at 50 yards. So, and, and nobody was looking at the 38 Super, right? Because 38 Super Comp is for. USPSA and hot rounds and all this stuff. And, you know, I didn't even realize how good the 38 Super was at Bullseye until I started building them years later. But so guys were chasing the magic pill for the center fire portion of Bullseye and they would shoot 38 Special or they would in a, in a 52 or a Colt or they would shoot the 32 Short 
what they didn't realize until they started shooting it was you have to have perfect follow-through. If you don't, you get keyholes at 50 yards. And man, I used to, I used to shoot next to these, these guys that would shoot those guns and you'd go down there at 50 yards and it would look like a shotgun hit the target and not with flight control. <laughs> and there would be bullets that were sideways through the target and all this stuff and they couldn't figure it out. But then when you shot it out of a rest, it shot perfect. Yeah. You know, they were super accurate. Yeah. Nothing to mess up. No, nothing to mess up. But if you shot it out of hand and you didn't have perfect form, they were a nightmare. So the last few years that I built bullseye guns, I really tried to push people to try the 38 super comp, right? Because with four grains of bullseye and a 115 grain hollow point, you're not going to find a more accurate handgun. You're just not. Um, I have numerous targets of five eighths of an inch at 50 yards for 10 shots. So all of them with 38 super, you know, nine millimeter, you can get it to shoot under an inch. It's not too hard if you're shooting the right ammo and it's hot, but you have the recoil to deal with, you know, and I'll never forget. It was about a year, year and a half ago. Fisher was here and he had never really played with 38 super. So I said, well, why, why, while you're here, why don't you shoot my 38 super commander that Brandon built me? Oh, it's not going to be any different than nine millimeter, blah, blah, more expensive. You got to reload for it. And I says, well, just try it. So I had loaded up some pretty special loads. I had uh, it's a 115 grain Sierra hollow point with enough power pistol that I'm not going to announce what it was, but I chronoed them and they were at 1575, which is flat stomping on it. And he shot that gun in the first shot. He looked over at me and he's like, this recoil softer than a nine millimeter. I'm like, yeah, dude. Build me really, one. <laughs> really long pressure curve, right? Nine millimeter, really sharp pressure curve. And that, that pressure curve just makes them super soft. So uh, that's why I'm a fan. So how many of those have you built for Steve since? None. What? No, no. Disappointment. Yeah. He doesn't, he doesn't want to have to reload and he doesn't want to have to yeah. buy it. You know, I mean, you can get 38 super comp. You just have to buy it from Atlanta arms or Georgia arms or, you know, somewhere like that, but he doesn't, he doesn't want to have to deal with it. So it's cool. I guess he'll just stick with his real 10 millimeter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the 10 that I built him, my God, that thing throws brass from here to Omaha. <laughs> so let's talk about that. That's okay. something we haven't talked about. 1911s in 10 mil. They suck. So why is that? <laughs> I don't know. I shouldn't say they suck. Um, I'm actually working on a comp 10 millimeter. Because what I, what I really want to offer is a wide body, 10 millimeter. Yeah. Right? I built one. Eric and I built it for a client in, in Florida. And I flat out told the guy, I said, look, you're going to send this gun back at some point to have us fix something. Because it, with the polymer grip and all of that, I mean, I shot 500 rounds out of it and it was brutal, mm -hmm. brutal. I had to adjust the grip safety several times because it keeps shifting because the yeah. polymer swelling and all this. So my goal is this winter is to finish my R&D on the comp setup for the 10 millimeter. I tried the, the comp that's on there now is the, uh, the same comp that I used on the YC squared and the, and the night stalker. 
Steve wanted me to try that comp. I'm like, it's not going to do anything, dude. That comp is not optimized for 10 millimeter. It's optimized for nine millimeter. Maybe twice the size. Maybe it would work. You know, I don't know. But for, for 10 millimeter, it's not. So I'm going to put the big hole comp on there now, the one that's on the life fighter, and see what happens. If it tames the recoil enough, then I'll probably offer what we would call a hunter model, which would be a full-size gun plus the compensator. Hmm. So you get, you get all the velocity of a 10 millimeter, right? You can just stand on it and none of the recoil. Yeah. Now it's going to be a loud son of a bitch, right? It's going to be hearing pro only because you're not going to shoot it without it. Um, and I'm sure you've shot comp guns without a, without a ear pro before. They're just loud. Oh no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> no. <laughs> They're just loud. Yes. Yeah. I don't need any more hearing damage. No, I had a, I had an idiot here one day. We were shooting light fighters and, uh, we were test firing him and I turned around and he had taken his ear pro off while Brandon was shooting. And I'm like, what in the hell's wrong with you? He goes, I just wanted to see how loud they are. I said, is it loud? He's like, yeah, it's really loud. My ears hurt. And I'm like, Good job, you? buddy. <laughs> You're an idiot. Well, now I heard, uh, I guess it's common knowledge that uh, hearing aids are now like over the counter or something now. It's supposedly, yeah. Pricing is going to go down. Oh, yep. I can't wait. I can't wait. Oh, Talking no. to various friends that are about the same age uh, yeah. that are picking them up and thinking, oh, that that's that would be awesome. Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it's nice not to hear people. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Namely, our wives. <laughs> Be like, honey, I never heard you. I, I batteries died. I'm sorry. Yeah, I couldn't hear you. Sorry. So Stephen just got a set from his financee, and it's magical. Mm -hmm. I, that's what I can imagine. That's man. First these, and then getting the getting the uh, full time ear ear pro. What's next? Just can't win. No. My uncle years ago, he had really bad hearing from shooting guns and working in a mechanic shop. So he got internal hearing aids put in that he can control with his phone. Hmm. That's pretty nifty. You know, uh, all you see is this little tiny plastic stem. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've seen those. Those are cool. Down in the ear canal. Um, but they even those, they they have their they have their issues, you know, like you can't you can't wear a Bluetooth headset in your ear. To listen to anything because well you have a hearing aid stuck in there um so yeah i don't know i mean i just i don't know i don't i don't know i don't know that i'll work on these if so actually i usually carry uh i can't remember what they are the 3m ear screw i carry them in my pocket at work just in case whether it's it's loud or i'm gonna we're gonna go shooting ray right. um just to have something always in there, that would just be, that would just be nice. Yeah. Uh, and to pick up stuff that I'm, I'm not hearing normally would be nice, especially at work. But I remember uh, at the driving range, as in driving vehicles, emergency vehicle operations, uh, talking to uh, 
a fellow cop and this guy's been a cop forever and noticing, holy crap, you have your, you have uh, hearing aids. How is it? And he's like, dude, I, I, it's changed my life. It's been wonderful. It's sad getting to that age where this is something that I'm actually looking forward to, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's part of it. It is truly yeah. is. As my and that's hey, hell we're talking about 1911s. What do you expect? Oh yeah. <laughs> and I'm wearing a sweater. <laughs> well, as my grandpa used to say, ain't none of us getting out of here alive, kid. That's right. That's right. I will uh, tell you the whole, you know, I don't know if you saw or not, but I talked about the stem cell stuff that I've done. Mm. And yeah, I've been I got my first stem cell treatment back in August. And I'm going to get another one this month. And uh, that's a life changer, complete life changer. You know, my, my left knee was so bad that I couldn't go up and down a ladder with two legs. Oh, wow. Now I have no pain at all going up and down. That is awesome. Yeah. My lower back, I had three discs that were really bad degenerated. I have no back pain anymore. Right. That is awesome. Um, Next, I'm going to have my shoulder treated because I'm pretty sure it's broken. <laughs> because the 4570. Well, it's a actually, callback. <laughs> I actually broke it, I think, or, or fractured it when uh, I wrecked my bike about six weeks ago. And I was driving through this cornfield in the dark, leaving, hunting, and a skunk ran out right in front of me. And it was either crash the bike or hit the skunk. I don't know if you've ever been sprayed by a skunk. I've been around it. I have not been sprayed by one, yeah. but I've shot a few. I don't yeah. want to be sprayed by a skunk. No, no. You know, I would have had to leave all my shit there and got a hotel room for a week. <laughs> it's true. But yeah, the, the stem cell stuff that I did, and there's a multiple different ways to get it done. The way I the way I did it is is how they do it down in Panama, where the guy harvests what they call the golden cells which are the actual regenerative cells. Um, a lot of places, if you go get stem cell treatment, they just, they'll take your own stem cells out of your hip or they'll use rooster comb or whatever bullshit that they're using now. Well, you, you know, you don't have any regenerative stem cells left in your body. They're all gone. Yeah. You used the first 25 or 30 years of destroying your body. You don't have any more. So what this, what this company does is they actually, they have a contract to get umbilical cords from birth babies. They take those umbilical cords and they harvest the regenerative stem cells only, right, out of those out of those umbilical cords, and then that's what they inject you with. And uh, actually, so Matthew says Mel, Mel Gibson touts that treatment, blah, blah, blah. Um, so he's the one that turned me on to looking into it. Hmm. Is I was watching a Joe Rogan podcast with Mel Gibson, and he was talking about his shoulder and all this stuff that he had wrong and his dad had all this stuff wrong. And uh, um, I was like, man, I got to look into this. So I started doing a lot of comprehensive research. And as it turns out, one of my very good friends and clients owns the place in, in Missouri that manufactures the cells. Oh, wow. Right. And he's like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll get you hooked up. And I was like, deal wow yeah it was a it was a hell of a deal so i'm looking forward to the second treatment 
The second treatment, I'm going to have them do both knees, which I shouldn't have done in the first place, my shoulder and then my back again. Um, you know, if, if everything goes well and I keep doing what I'm supposed to do, I should be looking at having discs that are somewhere between 75 and 85% as opposed to 40%. Yeah. Which I'll take the back of a 25 year old Joe. Heck yeah. Absolutely. That is awesome. We're trying, we're trying really hard to get Chuck to go in and get his knees and hips done. Why wouldn't he? I don't know. He's hesitant. I don't know. Hmm. I've told him several times. I'm like, look, these guys want to talk to you. They want to do this treatment for you. It will cost you nothing. They do it through a veterans foundation. Yeah. It's not like he's going to be cyborg or anything. No. And well, and the, the crazy thing is, and this is why I had him only do one knee when I went the first time is because I didn't know what kind of, um, what kind of issues I would have, right? You know, I didn't know if I would be able to walk afterwards. Yeah. How, how's recovery going to be? Right. There's, it's nothing. Hmm. Like it's nothing. I had a little bit of tenderness in my back because they put six needles in my back, right? For injections into the facet joints. Other than that, nothing. Matter of fact, when she did my knee, she took the scope and she was looking at it, you know, and she, she's moving it on my knee, and she goes, that's your tibia and fibia. And I go, okay. She goes, that's your femur, yeah. She goes, you should have cartilage right in here. And I go, yeah. She goes, you don't have much in there, but you will now. And I was like, oh. She goes, did that hurt? And I was like, no, you surprised the shit out of me. That was it. It was done. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, – I told – I told my buddy who owns the clinic, I said, I want to live to be a hundred. That's my goal. I want to live to be obnoxious to my great grandkids. Halfway there. Almost. And he goes, Hey, with the technology today, today, not a problem. Yeah. Not a problem at all. I mean, Matt, they're working on stem cells that kill cancer. That's crazy. It's phenomenal. You know, I mean, the anti-aging stuff and the, and the stuff that they're working on now and perfecting, they've already got it. They're just perfecting it. You want to live to 100? No, well, no problem. That's good stuff. Yeah. And you're getting positive results. That is wonderful. Oh, yeah. I mean, I spent a month up and down in trees chasing deer. Never had a problem with my back. Never had a problem with my knees. Nothing. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Heck, yeah. And so you have something going on tomorrow, tomorrow morning? Yeah, I'm going to a land auction. Is the land nearby? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's about 17 miles west of me. Oh, that's not bad. No, I've been looking at this farm for a while. It's uh, 148 acres. It's got a creek that runs through it. It's got about 90 acres of tillage. Cool. Right? rest of it's all thick hardwoods creek bottom well that sounds awesome yeah we'll see if i can get it bought it's it's one of those deals that it's a double-edged sword because um you know you have money you got to spend it or else the government takes it uh but at the same time you look at what's happening in the country and you're like man maybe i should keep my money Mm -hmm. i might need my money well and 
at and the rate it's, it's going, it's not going to be worth anything. Right, exactly. So you might as well have something that holds value, like land. Like Georgia Arms Ammunition Wad Cutters. Yeah, yeah. But uh, this, yeah, this land's kind of interesting. I was, I was really stoked about it when we first found it. Then I found out that the people directly west five years ago signed a windmill lease, which means that they, at any time, the windmill company can come in and put those big giant wind generators in. So originally when we looked at the property, Heidi and I were thinking, well, when Sophia gets out of school in six years, you know, we could, we could feasibly see ourselves building a house there, keeping yeah. the place here on the river, right? Renting the house out to one of the guys and keeping the shop here and everything. And I would build a small shop there and just to be able to do my own custom work or whatever. Heck yeah. Um, but now we're like, well, if they're building windmills there, we don't want to live next to that shit because yeah. it's noisy. You know, I mean, you don't, people don't think that 60 decibels or 50 decibels is that loud until you're sitting under one of them bastards. They're really loud. Well, that's where the hearing aids come in and you just turn them off. <laughs> yeah. Just don't get stem cells plugged in there and you'll be fine. Well, one of the treatments that I'm looking at doing, I'll probably do it in 2023, will be to help get rid of these. Hmm. They have they have special eye drops now that are stem cell eye drops that helps that help cure that problem of needing glasses. Hmm. I'm like, shit, I never needed glasses till I was like 45. Yeah. It would just be amazing to not need them again. Well, for me, it was funny. Uh, I remember I was I would wake up and look at my phone. It's just kind of blurry. And I figured it's because I just woke up. No, it's because I can't see. And then and then on a whim, my wife had her reading glasses and I just put them on and I went, holy crap, I can actually see. Yeah, for me, it was I was standing outside one day and I was I clipped my fingernails outside. It's a pet peeve, you know, because when you clip fingernails, they go everywhere. I don't care how careful you are. You're going to have a fingernail fly across the room and you're not going to find it until you're walking across the room barefoot in the middle of the night. You're like, damn, what was that? That was a fingernail. So my pet peeve is I clip my fingernails outside. So I'm standing outside, bright blue day, going to clip my fingernails. And I'm like, I can't even see my fingernail. What the hell's wrong with me? So I came in and I got my optimizer and I put it on. I was like, oh, that's better. I can clip my fingernails. And it dawned on me. You're 45. I could still see a deer at a thousand yards. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I can't see a damn fingernail, you know, 12 inches from my face. Yep. yep. I can see them really good out here, but right here, I can't see shit. So I went and I got a, I got a pair of readers to try them and they worked. So here we are, you know, yep. it's true. And I'm a huge fan because of the shop stuff. I like these, the clicks. Yeah. They have a magnet in between them, right? And they're adjustable for big heads or little heads or whatever. Uh, but I really like them. They work well. Yeah. I don't have to worry about laying them down somewhere and forgetting them because they're on my neck. It makes sense. Yeah. Well, I think we've covered a lot of really good stuff. All right. Thanks for Matt, jumping on. Oh, yeah. So before you go, though, 
Do you have some final thoughts, some final bits of wisdom for people that are looking in the 1911s or 2011s? And then also we'll need plugs where people can find you. Yeah. Um, I would say if you're just getting into 1911s, you know, do some research and decide what the purpose of the gun is going to be and buy accordingly. If you're just wanting a plinker, you know, you just want to get into the 1911 game. There's a lot of inexpensive options for that. You can do Ruger, you can do Rock Island, you know, I mean, there's a ton of, there's a ton of options. Some of them may or may not have um, limitations on ammo that you can use. You know, that's just part of the game. Once you get your feet wet, then start carefully evaluating what you do and don't like. You know, we, I, have, I have clientele that all they care about is the looks of a gun. They don't even care if it'll ever go bang because they're never going to shoot it. They're just going to have it on the wall. They're going to look at it. They're going to show their buddies when they come over, whatever. And those clients buy guns that are Cerakoted and all kinds of stuff, you know, whatever. Cool. But determine what your, what your use is going to be and help that guide you on what is the best option in that use. Because there's a lot of good companies out there. Um, and when, once you get to the point in the 1911 or 2011 or 2019 game where you're looking at true customs, not to be confused with semi-customs, okay? Um, there's a ton of semi-custom builders out there. And like we talked about before, they're basically all building the guns the same tolerances. Yeah. Does it, and, and I should clarify, that doesn't matter if it's a 2011 or 1911. There's companies out there that only build 2011s, right? And they call themselves custom shops. And some, to some degree, they are. You can order what you want, whatever. They're building to the same tolerances. Once you get to the custom world, the true custom world, there are a handful of guys, like maybe five, a handful of shops, I should say, that can give you the top performance. You know, guys like Stan Chen or C.T. Bryan, um, you're not going to get an Ed Christensen gun. Mike Curtis, uh, Fred Tots, uh, ourselves. This is a very, very limited, very limited number of people. And so it becomes a lot easier to pick, right? When you look at all those shops, you can go, okay, well, this guy has a 10-year wait, wait time. I'm not, I don't, I'm not interested. It's not, you know, this guy doesn't do any CNC work. I'm not interested, you know. So it makes it easier to pick. But Figure out what you're going to do with the gun, then buy accordingly. And when you're buying accordingly, remember remember what I say in my videos. Math don't lie. 3.14 is always pie. So where you can find me, um, regular website is chamberscustom.com. Uh, if you want to look at our, at our 2019s, our wide bodies, you can check those out at fatwmg.com, P-H-A-T, for pretty hot and tempting. Um, of course, we have the workingmansgun.com. All those sites are linked together. Um, if you want to watch YouTube videos, it's under Chambers Custom. And if you're really into the nitty gritty of how the guns are made and what the numbers are, and more importantly, why the numbers matter, that's the more important thing, is you can check us out on Patreon at 1911 University. And I know Matt's a member there. Uh, he chimes in occasionally, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of great great content there and 
for those of you who are wanting to order a chambers gun, that's the best way to get on the list early because mm. every, every time, yeah, every time we open the list or do a special release of pro series or whatever, Patreon guys get the first option. Yeah. Cause they're paying every month for that. Awesome. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me, Matt. I appreciate it. It was yeah. cool. So let's see here. My stuff. Um, one of my favorite things to say at the beginning. No, I say it always at the end. I like to say it at the beginning when I remember. It's make sure you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. So if you like what Joe, what Joe shared tonight, make sure you find him on social media. That whole algorithm thing doesn't necessarily work in the favor of good sources of information. Good sources of information aren't necessarily the most popular thing. Good sources of information are helpful for everyone. So for me, I find like Joe's kind of stuff, I, I find it also entertaining. It's educational and it's entertaining. <laughs> not everyone's like that. Unfortunately, the algorithm is not working in his favor. So that's where you come in and that's where you find them and you like and you subscribe and you share. If there's content that he's put together that's helped you, you probably need to be subscribing. You need to be sharing and that lets other people see what you're seeing. Um, everyone's, everyone's uh, their wall on social media is going to be different. It's going to be according to what they're looking at. So if you're sharing stuff that everyone else isn't seeing, they might see it on your wall and that might open the doors to a new source of good information. So Make sure you're, you're, you're supporting those sources that you have found to be beneficial. That goes with primary and secondary as well. Uh, we've Let's see here. We've been going for about two hours now. If you haven't already hit like, make sure you hit like. Uh, I'm sure you've, you've already subscribed clearly. If this has been something that's been beneficial, you should probably share. Now, if there was something specific that we discussed that you found that you really found to be really good, send me a message on 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 somewhere on social media, where I'm at, wherever, wherever I'm at, um, Matt Landfair on, on, uh, Facebook or send me an email at Matt at primary and Let me know what that segment is. Let me know what the timestamps are. And I can make that into its own little individual, into little video, because that's kind of helpful. Not everyone wants to sit through two hours of discussion. I personally do. Um, that's not for everyone. That's okay. So big thanks to our sponsors. Big thanks to Big Tech's Ordnance, Overwatch Precision, Filster, Primary Arms, Walther. Lastly, big thank you to the Patreon subscribers if you want to help support the network. That includes covering, man, do I have some bills with primary and secondary. Uh, go to patreon.com slash primary and secondary. There are multiple tiers. There are multiple benefits, multiple levels of benefits. Uh, all kinds of stuff is there for your use. To be honest with you, everything on primary and secondary, it's it's for free. It's for your use. The good stuff will never be behind a paywall. Stuff behind the paywall, I, I send out stuff, uh, kind of uh, rough drafts. As a matter of fact, I have a video of me angrily talking about weapon lights. That's probably not going to be released. I have to redo that one. There's, It's too rough around the edges. But that kind of stuff, that gets released. That, And I don't think it's going to... It's, for Patreon subscribers. I don't think it's going to, that one's going to get out to the, out in the wild. Um, but stuff like that I have available. That's kind of special for the Patreon subscribers. Not only that, but they also Patreon subscribers of network support and greater get access to the live episodes and they can 
uh, present questions, comments, or whatever that we can add to the to the discussion, which is very nice to have. Additionally, all the episodes are typically uh, released a little early for them. So the Patreon subscribers get it uh, both uh, on occasion, it's on audio, but it, most of the time it doesn't seem to be worth it to have it released early on audio because no one cares, but they do care about the, the YouTube links. If you are in the market also, if you need a knife, I have this awesome code with Scallywag, Scallywag Tactical and the code, all caps, is PNS10. If you happen to be in the, if you if you need one of those, uh, oh, I don't know, folder, as which I have on me as we speak. If you need a folder, the larger ones, the smaller ones, fixed blades. Christmas is around the corner, makes for a nice present. I bought a bunch of knives for uh, coworkers for Christmas this year, but PNS10 gets you 10% off. I think that's what I have next week. We have, okay. So tomorrow I'm going to be on another podcast. I need to post about that. And let's see here next week. We have airing of grievances. Yeah, yeah. Joe, if you're interested. <laughs> yeah tomorrow i'm uh, slinging lead podcast uh tomorrow evening and then next week i want to say next tuesday will be our official um airing of grievances and i have that kind of just uh shotgunned out for uh whoever wants to jump on who's been on before friends of the program wel- are welcome back uh bring your complaints your concerns whatever and we will discuss them and it's it will be cathartic. People will feel better afterwards. It'll be it'll be like they just took a good dump. Mike says I would be great on AOG. There you go. I got a few. Well, next Tuesday. I think it's next Tuesday. Pretty sure it's next Tuesday. Today's Monday, right? Yeah. 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 Next Tuesday. Yeah, unfortunately, because of my work schedule, I flipped entire. I'm I'm working graves right now, and I flipped entirely to be on to work at to live days because tomorrow I have training at eight in the eight in the morning, and then I teach for six hours in a row, cool. and then I go back to graves the following night. So that's awesome. So I'm loopy right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's all. I am going to kill the feed so I can edit this. I am hoping to have this released Saturday. Well, thanks. Thank you for letting me be here. Oh, anytime, anytime. All right, brother. Have a good one. Talk to you later.